Are you looking to connect with a diverse audience of developers? Look no further. You can partner with us here at the Code Newbie Podcast, and we'll help get your message out to our incredible listeners in an ad just like this one, led by me, your host. Contact us by emailing sponsors at codenewbie.org. Welcome to the Code Newbie Podcast, where we talk to people on their coding journey in hopes of helping you on yours. I'm your host, Saran, and today we're talking about CSS. So you've probably seen the gif of Peter Griffin, the dad from Family Guy, trying to open blinds. But every time he pulls on the string, the blinds go sideways, they bunch up, he pulls harder, they twist and turn, and finally, he rips the blinds off and throws them on the ground. At the bottom of the GIF is the caption, CSS. If you haven't seen the GIF, check out the link in your show notes. It is hilarious. All that is to say, CSS is hard, but there's a woman I know who loves it. I'm Jen Simmons. I'm a designer and developer advocate at Mozilla, the company that makes a Firefox browser. So I wanted to bring her on the show so we can all learn to love CSS. Okay, that might be a bit much. At least to have a better appreciation for it after this. You are so awesome for so many different reasons. First of all, that you know, job title itself is really fascinating. We're going to unpack that in a little bit. But I also love the fact that you have been coding. You've been in tech for a really long time. How many years, roughly, has it been? I've been making websites since 96. I first wrote code in 82 as a kid. Yeah. And what I love about not just what you do, but also the way you talk about what you do is you're really proud of your accomplishments. Yeah. I feel like I do that, especially because I'm not a white dude who, (laughs) (laughs) right. I mean, that's not the only reason, but I, I feel like it's like cool to be all you know, I'm just a person in a hoodie and I'm, I didn't even graduate from high school and I'm, but the only people I've seen get respect with that kind of tech humble brag are a very specific demographic. Yeah. Anybody else who isn't in that demographic works against us. And I, I think some things happen. They had been happening all along, but I got to this place where I was just, I got really angry mm. and I was really done. And I had a year of just knocked backwards and I I just, I sort of emerged from that time mm. In, with this other voice of like, mm-hmm, yeah, mm-hmm. actually, I do know what I'm doing. And yeah, actually, I am an expert. And yeah, actually, I'm done letting people think differently. May I ask what happened in that year that made you so angry? Um, Yeah, I got fired. It was the second time I've gotten fired. Mm. Uh, that time I got fired for like claiming the job that I was hired to do. I was hired to be a product <laughs> manager. And mm-hmm. I came in and I tried to manage the product. And the lead mm-hmm. engineer literally said to me, who do you think you are? Oh. Why are you trying to set priorities around here? And, you know, I didn't, I was naive, I think, and that I didn't realize what the power dynamics that were at play. But also it simply was that there was a power dynamic before I got there. The very fact that they decided to hire a product manager was done in an effort to change that power dynamic. And Ah. I was the kind of victim of the fact that they actually didn't want to change it. So Mm. whatever. (laughs) (laughs) So how did you how did you deal with that? Uh, Well, the first thing I did was like email people on the way home. And I had a new job in an hour and a half working. Wow. 
So that <laughs> that, that helped amazing. a little, like working as a contract front end developer contractor building a developer website for Chrome team. Like that helped. It's the ultimate comeback story. I know. An hour and a half. That's all I need. <laughs> uh, and then I think I, you know, I just put my head down and worked really hard mm. and. I, were, I focused on the Web Ahead podcast and I tried to focus mm-hmm. on becoming a better speaker. And, you know, within, I don't know, by a year later, a year and a half later, I um, stopped freelancing and just focused on being a, what some people call an evangelist, speaking at conferences and working on the podcast and ended up with the job that I have now. And just, I don't know, over those couple of years, really, somehow that anger turned into confidence and that confidence turned mm-hmm. into like, but I approached my interview process at Mozilla very differently, where I said, you know what? I don't fit into a typical resume, so I'm going to make a five-page PDF brochure about myself. I know how to design information, <laughs> and awesome. it's not going to look like a resume. And if this company can't handle that, if they're expecting it to be a very, very typical thing, then that's okay. It's not a good fit. And I went into the job interviews much more like, I don't know, the way you approach relationships where you're equal, where I mm-hmm. asked them a ton of questions. And in this interview process, I was like, I'm just going to be really straightforward. I'm going to say, this is what I'm good at. These are the things I don't know. This is what I could do for you. They you know, arranged a bunch of interviews with me, but I also arranged a bunch of interviews with them. I'm going to go ask people yeah. about their experiences working at this company. And I, I think I set up as many meetings as they set up with me. <laughs> wow. Meaning you initiated that and said, I want to meet with these people? Yeah. Oh, that's so cool. So do you do you think that's something that you could have done 20 years ago? Or were you able to do that due diligence because you're Jen Simmons and you have, you know, this history and this resume and all these awesome experiences? You know, I applied for this job in, uh, what year was that, 2015? I think I had a lot more strength because... I was 45. <laughs> <laughs> and I didn't have that when I was 25, especially me, me at 25. Oh my gosh. I <laughs> I think most people would, if they met the 25-year-old Jen Simmons, they would literally not recognize me. Like I was so shy. I was so <laughs> petrified constantly. I was silent. But in some ways, the the world that I was getting myself into over at Mozilla, they I don't think they were aware of who I was at all. Um, I don't know. I don't know. It's hard to know how you, where you get confidence from, but some of it just came from like bad past experiences and being willing to take giant risks because I just was mm. not willing to go through another bad experience. And I think a lot of us feel there's a lot of failure, rejection, especially in the job search process that becomes really, really easy to internalize. Is that avoidable? How do you turn that and go, screw this, I'm going to do it my way versus holy crap, I must not be that great. I don't think that's avoidable. Mm -hmm. I mean, I absolutely feel those kinds of things in giant waves. I don't think it's about getting to a place where you don't feel that anymore, where you don't, that doesn't happen. I think it's more like getting to a place where you go, oh, it's February. It must be time to believe that I'm completely worthless and I have nothing to offer. (laughs) And then just not believing it, just not believing it. Yeah. Alternatively, are there moments when you are able to look at those awards and go, you know, today I feel like a badass. I'm actually pretty awesome. (laughs) I think there are days I feel like a badass, but I don't think it's the awards. I think it's when I get to see someone get something out of something that I've offered. 
Mm-hmm. And even mm-hmm. if I know that what I offered is flawed and not as good as I wanted and all of that, and sometimes those ideas can be very, very loud and I can end up thinking about that more than anything. But in the mm-hmm. moments where I can actually like see the person who came up to me at a conference after and just say, gosh, this was so helpful. And I look mm-hmm. at them and I think, you might be the only person in this whole room that thought that, but looking at mm-hmm. you right now, I'm so happy that I could have done that mm-hmm. for you. Yeah. And that's why I think especially conferences are so special because you get to meet those people who've been listening to your podcast and reading your blog posts and all those things and they become real. Yeah. Or, you know, if you're building a website for a client or for a project and then it ships or you, mm-hmm. you know, mm-hmm. later do user testing and you get to meet somebody who actually uses the thing that you built. Or, you know, there's lots of other ways that manifests that have nothing to do with conferences. But there's a way in which when you get to actually sort of sit back and look at what you made and mm-hmm. say, wow, yeah. I made that. So I want to read a really quick excerpt from one of your blog posts. It reads, quote, I'm a woman who's a member of the CSS working group who's been teaching the industry groundbreaking insights into the nature of CSS, layout, graphic design, and the medium of the web full time for the last three years. I'm working on new CSS, inventing things that don't exist yet, end quote. And I love that. And I want to unpack some of those accomplishments. So let's start with the CSS working group. What is that? So the technology of the web is built on three things, HTML, CSS, and JavaScript. There may be lots of other tools and lots of other packages and frameworks and blah, blah, React, blah, blah, broccoli, blah, blah. But (laughs) that stuff is not actually the web technology. Those are things that Mm. help you make web technology, maybe. But the technology of the web itself is HTML, CSS, and JavaScript. HTML is for marking up content or marking up forms or marking up, you know, making stuff exist on the page. CSS is for styling it visually, placing it somewhere, maybe doing some animations, changing the colors, changing the fonts. And then JavaScript is for things it should be, hello, only for, <laughs> in my opinion, and also the, all the people who invented the web. It's awesome, but it's not for everything. You don't use JavaScript to do visual styling. You don't use JavaScript to mark up content. You use JavaScript to create other kinds of interactivity or other kinds of more rich experiences, uh, things that you wouldn't be able to do with CSS or HTML alone. And so CSS is that middle sandwich, right? So the CSS, that got invented. And so originally when the web was invented, there was this competition, not at the very beginning, but quickly, there was this competition between Netscape and Internet Explorer, where Mm -hmm. each of those browsers thought, hey, I have an idea. We want to add something cool to our browser and you don't have it. You over there, that browser doesn't have this thing. But the problem is when Netscape would do one thing and Internet Explorer would do a different thing, it was impossible to make a website work in both browsers. You had to make two websites. Literally two independent websites. Yes. And so most of the time you would go to someone's website and it would have, you wouldn't actually land on the website. You land on this like interstitial page that say which website do you want be like the name of the site and then there'd be two buttons one for internet explorer and one for netscape and you would click so it didn't automatically detect it you'd have to tell it yeah because there was no there wasn't any javascript to automatically detect anything this was like Mm. early days but to build two websites was a lot of work so then a lot of sites were like no forget that we're just going to only build this website for netscape and we don't want any internet explorer users okay so how did netscape win that why did everyone make that decision I don't know. I don't know. It was mm. just, they were bad decisions. It was a terrible idea. Yeah. <laughs> but, that, you know, you had limited budget and you would kind of just guess. Maybe you liked Netscape better personally. Mm. But what happened was that 
People said, this is ridiculous. We need to have standards. So we ended up with a set of standards for HTML. Actually, now there's Quay. There's a whole bunch of them. A whole bunch of standards for CSS, a whole bunch of standards for JavaScript. So these documents are written up so that that way when we say invent something new like CSS Grid, it's not like a vague document about an idea for how to do page layout using a grid. It's an incredibly precise technical document that not only defines how grids should work in every possible situation, Mm -hmm. it also defines how grids should break in situations where the people writing the CSS are actually making mistakes and writing bugs in their code so that the bugs are the same in every browser. Mm. That process to get to this point 20 years later, 25 years later, has been an interesting evolution. But once the new thing hits the browser, like once every browser gets rounded corners or once every browser gets Flexbox or once every browser gets CSS Grid, the way that CSS Grid is implemented is identical in every single browser or the way that Flexbox is implemented is supposed to be identical in every single browser. It's not at the moment. We're trying to get that fixed. Yeah, and that's the thing. Like I'm I'm imagining the CSS working group having a Trello board with like this huge <laughs> backlog of ideas that people have pitched and been complaining about for a number of years. Is there a process around prioritizing that? Is it just individual people raising their hand and saying, I'm personally interested in taking this on? Or You know what happens actually happens more is that and I was surprised because before I joined the CSS working group, I had no idea how it worked. And I would have imagined that there was a whole group of like the best graphic designers, the best web designers in the world who sit around with a bunch of ideas and set, just like you said, on some sort of a Mm -hmm. priority board and, you know, decide in general what's, what should be the next priority. Yeah. That's not how Mm -hmm. how it works at all. Um, (laughs) It's mostly browser makers and it's mostly, Mm -hmm. you know, Apple will show up and say, Hey, we had this idea about, how do you make your website handle a viewport with rounded corners? Because I don't know, maybe in the future we'll want to something, something can't talk about the iPhone 10, something, something, <laughs> right? Like, <laughs> but they'll, you know, they'll, they'll make some sort of proprietary or some sort of like thing, like some sort of rough draft and mm-hmm. say, we have this rough draft. This is a thing that's important to us. We want to make sure that this becomes a web standard and we want to put this in the browser. And all the other companies sort of have veto power. Like sometimes, mm-hmm. you know, if one- I was wondering, yeah, I was wondering how they, they all work together. Yeah. Yeah. And I think people imagine that there's some kind of a giant fight in the CSS working group. But honestly, it's not like that at all, where, mm. you know, the people who write these specs, who work for these browser makers, there's not very many of us in the world. There's maybe a hundred people total ever. And so everybody's friends. Everybody's like, oh my gosh, you do the same thing I do. Nobody at my company understands me, but you understand me. (laughs) You You feel my pain. (laughs) And they speak this language that I'm just learning of, you know, uh, how browsers think about how to paint the page and how to make a website run. And it's a very nerdy, very, you know, they're all C++ developers. They don't, they're not CSS developers. So you mentioned earlier that doing like CSS grid layouts took 10 years to actually implement and adopt. What makes it take so long? I think in part it was because computers used to be a lot slower and we, in a way, maybe needed to wait till computers got faster. Doing the calculations and the math of grid is kind of intensive and we needed Mm better processors to be able to handle that. I don't think we could have done it on two, you know, like 1996 computers. I also think that the CSS working group itself had to kind of grow up and get to a place where we realized that we need to define the bugs as well as the features, that we needed to define the exact behavior all the way down to this detail that I was talking about before. 
So let's talk about IE. Yes. Why is IE such a, I don't want to say the word problem, but why does it always feel like the thing that all the front-end developers complain about and is the one thing that doesn't have the feature that's available in all the other browsers? Why does it always feel like it comes up last? Yeah, it's funny because there was a time when IE was the best browser where you were mm. so grateful that people were using IE6 because it actually implemented standards when other browsers didn't. So Internet Explorer 5 was the first browser to come along that implemented CSS on any level that made it usable. That was kind of around the time when web standards started to happen at all. So HTML was getting better standardized as well. And IE6 was a pretty awesome browser because it really did fix a lot of those problems that people had been living with, with IE3 and 4. And it was really good for web standards. And Netscape mm -hmm. was the other browser. So there were those two browsers that were out there at the time. Netscape ended up losing most all of its market share to IE. IE kind of took over. And so Microsoft thought, I think Microsoft looked around and they went, well, we have, you know, 90 whatever percent of market share. Mm -hmm. Why why bother making our browser better? Let's just ride our coattails and be awesome. Mm. And, and they kind of hand wavy history hand wavy you should fact check this they kind of <laughs> they kind of i think they kind of shut down the internet explorer 16 and i think they kind of pulled a lot of engineers mm -hmm. off of it and they didn't work on the browser for a long time and then meanwhile so apple made safari and chrome, google made chrome and uh, firefox made mozilla firefox made mozilla first like back when ie6 was was still f more new and these other browsers were better and they were started to be really awesome and they really started to follow web standards. Um, and then eventually they started updating themselves. You know, Microsoft, I think they did a really smart thing. They kind of looked at IE. They said, wow, we've got all this proprietary stuff. We've got all this legacy stuff. What are we going to do? It's going to be really hard to evolve Internet Explorer and make it better we don't have a time machine yet, so we can't go back in time and fix our mistakes, <laughs> right? They decided what to do is they would just, they'd like really redo it. So they had basically forked the code base and they mm -hmm. didn't start over, but they they made huge changes and got rid of tons of technical debt and they renamed that browser and they named it Edge. Mm -hmm. It would be nice if IE would just go off in the corner and die forever. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but the problem with that is that they're are institutions that have millions and tens of millions of dollars invested in websites that rely on things like ActiveX. So like I have a friend who does security at a hospital and he was really mm -hmm. upset when he learned about Edge because he said, but we oh. can't not run all of our internal websites that only work inside the hospital. They're behind a firewall. But all mm -hmm. the doctors and all the people are running around with these medical records and running these systems. And they've, I don't know, $50 million? I, like, how much money do you wow, spend on a yeah. piece of software like that over 10 years? Yeah, You can't just throw yeah. that in the trash and start over. It runs on top of ActiveX, so they can't get rid of it. And so it's still supported. IE11 is going to be around for a long time, and mm -hmm. it's not going to have any new features. The only new things that get released for IE11 are security fixes. So as developers, when I'm thinking about what tools to use, do I still need to think about IE? Can I just think about Edge? I think it depends on your audience and I think it depends on your project. And I also think that you don't make that decision all at once. Like maybe mm. you make that decision because you have a QA department, you have a quality assurance department and there's a, there's like a team of people at your company or on your project that are, their whole job is just to test. And maybe 
they have to decide which browsers are we going to use when we do our manual tests. I could see having a list there, the QA department, like maybe IE is on your list and maybe it's not on your list. But I think from the point of view of a developer, especially if you're a person doing CSS Mm -hmm. and HTML, it might be slightly different when you're doing something in JavaScript, but especially when you're doing CSS and HTML, I feel like there's no excuse for having a website that doesn't work in some kind of old browser that you've never even heard of that runs on mm. a game console browser from four years ago. Mm. You can make HTML run everywhere. You can make CSS run everywhere. And maybe you only have two people in the world using IE9, but those two people are important. Coming up, Jen gives us some insight on how to navigate new CSS tools and build for different browsers, especially as a code newbie. She also shares what the web might look like if it didn't have a grid system at all after this. I'm wondering, as a developer, at what point should I adopt some of those new tools? Should I wait until all the browsers are fully up to speed? Is it, you know, is one browser good enough? How do I decide when to jump in and experience some of those new things you're making? I think there's two answers to this question. So there's a lot of new tools all the time. Get a new tool because you're having fun and you just think it'd be fun to learn it or because you're, mm-hmm. the people you respect or the people you're working with or your colleagues or your friends are using it and you want to learn more and kind of participate in a community with along with them or, you know, work mm-hmm. at your job with yeah. them. Also, if you have a problem, like you keep finding yourself having to cut and paste and cut and paste and cut and paste and you realize, wow, I wonder if there's a tool out there that would automate this for me and make this part of what I'm doing Mm. easier. Yeah, probably there is. But the rest of the time, I would try to relax. There was a time when there there really weren't any of these tools. And those of us who've been Mm. around forever remember those days. And then there was a time when there were like some cool new tools and everybody learned every tool because they were all cool and we all wanted to like know all of mm-hmm. them. And then they mm-hmm. got to this point where it started to be so many that we started feeling overwhelmed and really guilty. Like I should be learning all these new tools, but there's right. too many of them. Yes. And now I think we're in a place where my advice is don't worry about it. You're not going to ever know them. Every one of these tools comes and goes. Dreamweaver came, went. Flash came, went. Mm-hmm. <laughs> React will come, React will go. So how should that inform what we learn and what we prioritize in our learning? How do you take that information and make sure that we're optimizing for long-term success? Yeah, I do think it's important to learn those skills. I know too many JavaScript developers who don't actually know hardly anything about HTML, and their work really suffers because of it. Or there was a tweet going around the other day that I retweeted that that they see far too much JavaScript written because people don't know CSS. Mm. I don't know, they write 400 lines Hmm. of JavaScript to do something that they could have done in two lines of CSS. Yeah. I should also say, uh, you know, you were asking about IE. There are some other browsers that I don't think we talk about enough that have bigger market shares than IE, especially in the United States or maybe also in Europe, where like the UC browser for Android has twice as many users as every version of IE. Oh, wow. Samsung Internet Browser now has more users than all versions of IE combined. Really? Yeah. Huh. So these are important browsers, and we need to make sure that our code works in browsers uh, like those browsers, even if you haven't heard of them, even if you don't have the QQ browser or the Badu browser and you don't test on those browsers. Uh, 
we have to keep those in mind. There's always going to be browsers mm-hmm. that don't have the new thing. So, so in our community, especially, there is a very deep frustration with CSS. How do we get to a place where we're not afraid and frustrated and angry with CSS, but we embrace it and we see it as a good substitute for maybe some of the JavaScript that we're writing? Yeah. Anybody who's a newbie, I would recommend perhaps, maybe not in every case, but in general, in most cases, I would recommend don't bother learning how to do an entire float-based layout and don't bother learning Bootstrap. Start with Mm. learning CSS Grid, Flexbox, multi-column, the alignment properties, and how to do layout with a new technology. And that thing of like, I touched this part of the CSS and it all fell apart. And then I touched that part of the Mm -hmm. CSS and it fell apart in the opposite direction. That is not going to be the case anymore, I don't think. Mm. Painful in that way. Now, that's not to say the CSS is not painful or that's not to, you know, it's not going to all be magic and rainbows. But a lot of the frustrations, I hope, are going to go away once people really learn the new layout model, because we actually have a layout model now. Like things mm-hmm. actually make sense. We actually have good tools now. When you think about CSS grid systems, who should be paying attention to this? Probably a lot of people would just immediately assume that developers, front-end developers, need to learn this code. And that is true. I do think that every website will be using CSS grid, Flexbox, alignment, on the other pieces of layout. In the future, I think five years from now, we will not have layout frameworks anymore like Bootstrap. There might be other reasons to have frameworks and other kinds of frameworks that that are out there, but I don't think that they're going to ship with kind of a, a, a layout system in them. I think we'll just make our own, the same way we make our own typography system or our own color palette system. Changing the underlying tools changes what's possible in graphic design on the web. What we've been seeing a lot of over the last five years, especially, is kind of every website creates this visual grid of a 12 column layout where everything is smashed up against the top of the page and everything is lined up on the edges of one of those 12 columns. The reason things are all squished against the top of the page is because of the nature of floats. So this Mm. technical tool under the hood created a visual reality and so at the moment, most designs are still very conventional. And so the front end developers might be, it's more fun to use grid than it is to use bootstrap or floats. But in a way, it kind of almost doesn't matter because the design is the same anyway. Uh, mm-hmm. But very quickly, I hope that we're going to get to the, a place where a lot of the designs that will start shipping are going to be designs that are impossible with the old tools and require mm-hmm. the new tools. So do you see the 2018, 2020, the future layouts replacing the 12 column system so that there's now the five circle system like do you see it kind of having more options like that or is it that we won't need layouts predetermined layouts in any way and we can kind of do our own thing more easily i hope we will all do our own thing i think the layout depends on the project you know i don't see people saying here are the five typography systems now. You should use one of these five web fonts. I hope that projects, I hope that designers will take this freedom and uh, come up with some new designs. So when we have a future where layouts can be, you know, any any layout, any grid system, or maybe not even a grid system at all, do you worry about usability being a problem? 
I don't worry about it, but that question comes up all the time. Um, mm. I do think that with great freedom comes great responsibility. Mm-hmm. It does mean that now you can make a completely confusing layout. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and I don't think that's a good idea. Um, mm. But I also think that our users have more sophistication when it comes to navigating a layout than we think they do. Um, I also think that those of us who were around in the early 90s, the mid 90s, remember a time when Every website had a different layout and you went from site to site to site and you kind of had no idea what you were going to get. And it was sort of fun. Mm -hmm. And there was an element of mystery meat navigation. A lot of sites had this thing that we we, we named mystery (laughs) Mystery meat navigation. And you'd like land on a page and there'd just be like this illustration and there's a couch and a lamp and a picture frame hanging on the wall and a rug and there are no words and you're like you don't know what to do it's like a video game <laughs> so the the nav bar got invented like that was not a thing for the first 10 years of the web the nav bar had to be mm-hmm. invented and now we replace the nav bar with a hamburger menu like i don't think that's a mm-hmm. hamburger mm-hmm. menu i don't think is turning out to be such a good idea right so mm. should you go too crazy with your nav bar no could you slightly alter it? Users are going to know what to do. Like there's a principle called the proximity principle in graphic design mm-hmm. where if you put some things near each other, our brains understand that they go together. So it sounds like what you're saying is that even if we don't have our 12 column grid system, we still have general principles of design yeah. that we can use to educate whatever future systems or non-systems we make for layout. Yeah. And the other thing, apps, right? So one of the things that people like about a quote unquote app, and typically when people use the word app, they're talking about a piece of software that runs on a mobile operating system, so for a phone or something, there was this moment where all of a sudden people were inventing these apps that didn't exist before, making phone apps, Mm -hmm. making tablet apps. And there was a lot of new uncharted territory when it came to how interfaces worked and how things were laid out. And those apps were not like the kind of computer programs that people had made for Mac or Windows There was sort of this other thing where you slide sideways or you pull to refresh. There were all these conventions that got invented out of nowhere. And I think we, you know, people were willing to take risks because the apps, the app space was new. Mm -hmm. But I think it proves that unconventional layouts can be incredibly usable and actually more usable than the things that we're used to. So do you see these changes attracting more graphic designers into coding and possibly being developers? I hope so. I've talked to a lot of folks who get excited at conferences and they come up to me after and say, you know, I've always meant to learn CSS. I've always meant to Mm. learn HTML. I sort of started to, but then I didn't and I struggled. I gave up, but now I'm going to do it. Now I really, Mm. now I really do want to do it because I want to be able to play with these tools and I want to be able to understand what this is. So I'm hoping people do. Yeah. Yeah. And what I love about talking to you and this conversation is that you're really into this. You're like really excited. Like I can feel your passion. I can hear your passion in your voice. Were you always like that? Were you always excited about CSS? I don't know. You know, before CSS even existed, I was excited about design and making something Mm. beautiful and learning the tools that are needed in order to do that so that I had Mm -hmm. the power to do that. 
and teaching people how to do it. I just want people to make beautiful things. Yeah. Was there a moment that you remember seeing what CSS could do or seeing something built with CSS that made you go, holy crap, this is really cool? I remember trying to build websites before CSS and being really frustrated and thinking that it was my fault and that it was because I was bad at it. And then I remember reading Jeffrey Zeldman's book, Designing with Web Standards, that came out in like 2003, mm -hmm. and saying, oh, it's not my fault. It's this whole <laughs> thing I described earlier with like Netscape and Internet Explorer fighting with each other. And so when I read his book, which is so beautifully written and explains all these things in stories and in a way that was really approachable, I was like, oh, yes. And I got excited about the possibility of being able to make websites uh, again. And at this point, it feels like a sad old reason, a naive old reason. But I was excited about it because it meant people who didn't have access or power in a traditional way, it meant that folks could have that power. And if you wanted to talk about political issues, you wanted to talk about all kinds of things, you wanted to tell stories of people who were not getting their stories told or who are not being seen in the traditional mainstream media or the traditional mainstream like television and film, you could do that. You know, my whole career was about that long before I started making websites. And that's to me what's important about the web and learning the technology is in service of that kind of a mission or that kind of access for everybody to be out there having a voice. Wow. That was beautiful. That was such a great way to like wrap up this interview. That was awesome. So let's do a fill in the blank. One thing I wish I knew when I first started to code is. I belong here. <laughs> mm, yeah. Like I, I studied the first code I wrote was Fortran when I was in seventh grade at engineering camp at Virginia Tech in the summer for a week. Mm -hmm. Wow. And then I learned basic in math class in seventh and eighth grade. And then I learned Turbo Pascal in high school. And I was really good at it. I was really mm -hmm. good at it. Very, very fast. And yet, by the time I got to the end of my high school career, I also knew that computer science was not a place for me to be. And I mm. didn't take any classes ever again. And I kind of found my way back when the web showed up because it was like a way to do coding that was artistic and out in the world and cool computer stuff all at the same mm -hmm. time, which I was like, what? You get to code and design? You get to, you know. But I wish somehow when I first started to code, I just had the feeling I have now, which is, well, I can't express it without using curse words, so I won't express it. But, <laughs> <laughs> but like, hey, scoot over. <laughs> you know? Yeah. Yeah. It's interesting that in high school is when you said this place is not for me. What happened or what did you see or hear that got you to that conclusion? Yeah, I was taking AP computer science in high school, which I was, you know, very lucky, especially this was the late 80s to even be at a school that had such a thing. And there was this both excitement because I totally fit in. That was definitely the way my brain wanted to work. But there was also this kind of, I don't know what it is when you're a boy and you're acting like a bro but whatever that is the mm -hmm. the not yeah. the child version of being a bro that kind of culture of 
this is how you're supposed to act. This is what you're supposed to wear. This is how mm -hmm. we talk. These are the words that we use with each other. And and I just remember hanging out with those guys. And on the one hand, they were my friends and it was fun. And But on the other hand, I really did not belong. And they mm -hmm. were representing a kind of nerd culture that I didn't fit into. And so later when I had choices and I, you know, you have to make choices about what classes you're going to take. I just never chose computer science again. And I, I just didn't feel like it was something I wanted to try to force myself into. I was not mm. unaware of the uphill battle that it would be. And I just didn't feel like doing it. Well, I'm glad that you keep coming back. We're <laughs> all very, very lucky to have you. And we definitely get to benefit from all of your hard work and, and your continued fight. So thank you for that. So do you want to say goodbye to people listening? Yes. Goodbye, people listening. <laughs> <laughs> Awesome. And that's the end of our sixth episode of season two. Let me know what you think. Tweet me at CodeNewbies or send me an email, hello at CodeNewbie.org. If you're in D.C. or Philly, check out our local CodeNewbie meetup groups. We've got community coding sessions and awesome events each month. So if you're looking for real-life human coding interaction, look us up on meetup.com. For more info on the podcast, check out www.codenewbie.org slash podcast. And join us for our weekly Twitter chat. We've got our Wednesday chats at 9 p.m. Eastern Time and our weekly coding check-in every Sunday at 2 p.m. Eastern Time. Thanks for listening. See you next week. Ha!